I would look for like places that maybe people actually like this here because maybe places in disrepair, places no one cared about. We were too much in the city. So then we found this place way down in the middle of nowhere down in China Basin in San Francisco before that was developed right at the end of 16th where it hits the bay and we found this block long wall. And so we went down there and did initial images and then we felt really safe. So we ended up painting this wall for like almost two months and we did a whole entire block long mural without any permission. I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach Sabbath in Los Angeles. Here we are on Weed Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist. About. There were things I did illegally that ran for years and years and years in San Francisco. And that was always really cool. Just accepting the ephemeral nature of putting something out in the streets. This episode, we're going to talk to Andrew Schultz. About. We basically chose to utilize the building like a found object. So we scraped and primed only where the imagery was. And we left the dilapidation or the history visible on the building all right i was actually born in uh, milwaukee wisconsin in 1975 i'm 42 years old currently i lived there till i was about 22 at which point i relocated to san francisco i lived there for approximately 18 years until moving to la and now i've been here for three years most people all we really know about milwaukee is laverne and shirley (laughs) So how is your childhood like Laverne and Shirley and how is it different than Laverne and Shirley? And then we'll have more of a frame of reference. I would say the only point of Laverne and Shirley reference point I can make is that we did watch it on the TV. Okay. Um, I grew up on the north side of Milwaukee. The thing a lot of people don't know about Milwaukee is that it is one of the most segregated cities in the country. It's also a gigantic city. But because it's only 72 miles north of Chicago, and Chicago is the main city in that region, Milwaukee's kind of become this not really the place to be, so to speak. Like, yeah, um, like Philly. Definitely. There's a relationship like that with Philly to New York. As a young child, I started skateboarding very early on, and it was not long before I was skating the city of Milwaukee, but then getting into my teenage years, Chicago was right down there. It was an easy hour and a half drive, so... There is a huge relationship between the scenes of like art, music, skateboarding, what have you, between Chicago and Milwaukee. You know, it's really nice. So this was like Pal Peralta, Natus era. Yeah, I started skating in 1985, so definitely it was like the Pal Peralta, the Search for Animal Chin, that era of skateboarding, Tony Hawk, the Bones Brigade. So this is like earlier, there was like people who were doing really pioneering tricks and stuff, and there was the magazines and the photography, but this was like when the graphics started taking off. Exactly. So is that like an influence? Sure. Definitely, that's an influence on my art. And living in the Midwest versus living in California and being a skateboarder, it was like you're kind of this outcast or whatever you want to say. Even now, and I would say in the Midwest, if you're 30 and you're riding around on a skateboard, fair majority of people you're going to be like you're still skateboarding you're 30 years old like what but like out here it's just like more of like a lifestyle or a culture which it was very challenging actually being a skateboarder growing up in the 80s you know getting messed with at school by the jocks the or whatever Did you really have a crew? 
I had a bit of a crew, yeah. um, but also, you know, a lot of my friends that skateboarded didn't go to the school I went to. So, yeah, okay. you know, you're on your own when you're at school. But to take it back to art, you know, skateboarders now, it's more of an accepted sport. So it's almost become sure, yeah. more like a jock thing, so to speak. Yeah. But like when I was growing up, it was like the weirdos were the ones skating, the, the guys listening to The Cure and Dinosaur Jr. and Suicidal Tendencies and all this other stuff. And that was like outside of the norm. From an early age as well, I was like interested in comic books and comic books kind of led to being interested in graffiti. And also then when, as you said, the skate graphics started to come in, there's definitely a relationship to like comics as well. So yeah. So if you were like specific artists or specific images that were like the first things that drew you in, do you know it? When I was younger, like the original like Powell graphics, like the Bones Ripper, Tony Hawk, all that stuff. A key, key influence for me was when the company World Industries began. That was like a very specific era in skateboarding. This like very cartoony craziness and some of it with like a political edge. Like there was an artist named Mark Mackay who did a lot of board graphics for World Industries and stuff. That was like looking at these skate graphics and sort of like copying them. There was another guy, Sean Cliver. These guys are still around like for sure, mostly doing a lot of illustrative stuff. That was like in high school, like what I was definitely interested in. You gotta tell us what comics you like, though. We're comic nerds as well. Be beginning on, I was like definitely interested in Marvel comics. That was like my thing. I was really into like the Punisher, Daredevil. I liked the uh, Todd McFarlane era of Spider Man. I got really into like Batman, but like when they started to bring out these smaller, darker series, like there was a series in the 80s called Batman the Cult. Oh, yeah, Bernie Wrights. I definitely love Charles Burns. Freshman year in high school, I had a huge comic book collection, like 5,000 comics. And wow. I sold them. It's funny because I sold them all in a time where I didn't have the internet, obviously, in like 89 or 90 or whatever, and put up a little thing at the local comic book store that I was selling comics and literally had some guy come over and buy the whole collection for like, I don't know, like 1200 bucks or something. But at the time that was a ton of money to me. And it really like is what helped me be able to afford to, to buy skateboards throughout like a lot of my high school years. I had this money just sitting and anytime I needed a skateboard. So it was like my comic book money that like allowed me to like then be a skateboarder because I had money to buy decks. Yeah. All of the comics that you named, they're all city, urban. Were you in the city or were you kind of in the suburbs outside of? I was in the north side of Milwaukee. So it's like, I don't know, unless you've been there, it's like everybody has houses so with front yards and backyards, but definitely urban. I know like Philly has a bunch of these, DC too. It has houses with lawns, but they're kind of in the belt of. Right. And like downtown's like a 15 minute freeway drive and then you're where the skyscrapers. Is that off the like exciting that. part of town to you? I always definitely was drawn towards the city and, you know, I don't necessarily want to go down the road, but like the neighborhood I lived in when we were real young, it was a really nice neighborhood. But as time went on and toward the late 80s, it really started to go downhill. I was living around a lot of gang stuff, a lot of like drug dealing. There were several people that I grew up with that were shot and murdered. I had a very good friend of mine that I grew up with shot somebody and ended up having to go to jail for a really long time. An older guy in my neighborhood that I grew up with, he kind of looked after like some of our little 
squad of skater. You know, we also were super into basketball. He kind of looked after us, but he was like gangster in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden he got his life straight together and then literally joined the Marines. And then they had a big going away party for him in the park by my house. And then like the rival gang actually showed up at his going away oh and, and shot him dead. So that's the kind of stuff that was going on in my neighborhood. My parents got us out of there by my sophomore year in high school and we moved to a different neighborhood that was not like that. But the last couple of years of living there skateboarding, my mom would be like, here's five bucks. And that was enough to like take the bus, go skate downtown all day. I had a couple bucks. I could go Taco Bell and take the bus back at the end of the night. But, you know, I don't know that my mom was consciously, but it got me out of that neighborhood. And a lot of the guys I was around in that neighborhood, they were young kids, like 13, 14, but they were doing real crazy crime. Uh, another younger kid that I grew up with is actually also doing life in prison right now. So, and that was there. And I don't know how to really put that into like real clear terms without it becoming really a cliche thing, but skateboarding sort of saved me from going down a route. You know, when you're at that young age too, it's like seductive. Oh, I want to be a badass, but the repercussions of being a badass, you don't really see those until you do. And hopefully that's not doing years and years in prison or something yeah. or dying or something like that. I used to teach high school in the Bronx and just seeing all the boys dying to be a badass and me just being like a, an old dad, like, please. Don't be that much of a badass. Right. Nowadays, I look at it the same way. I'm 42. I have my son. I see how kids act. I'm still very much a skateboarder, and I still, like, hang out at a lot of skate parks in L.A. here. And I see these 14, 15-year-old kids, and, like, they actually scare me. I'm like, whoa, these dudes are gnarly. And that's the thing I guess I recognize. When you're at that age, you just don't see, like, the bigger picture of things. You know, I did end up getting in quite a bit of trouble when I was a little older, like around the age of 18 because of graffiti and like vandalism and stuff like that and ended up having to go to jail. And that was actually the moment at which like I became sort of politically active and I suddenly became like conscious of the way the system works for better or for worse. So all these topics, you can go so far in depth. We don't have the time to do that here today. And that's another thing I look at, like going to jail as an 18 year old kid and having to get put on probation and like my parents having to bail me out and get a lawyer. And now I look back at it almost like a blessing in disguise because it really was an awakening for me to like get my shit together and what the repercussions could be for my actions. Just going through that and seeing the way the system works and on a certain level you have to take it seriously, but then on a whole other level, it's a big joke. Especially the juvenile system, you see right away that like all these things that are supposed to be conducted according to rules is just like this fuck up talking to that fuck up, you know? Right. <laughs> Which is really obvious when you go through it. What were your first like making art steps? Were you tagging stuff? You're tagging your name? You're tagging like stuff that like had imagery? Or were you drawing too? Like when did that start and how did that? First of all, I went where I lived when I began high school, the public school I would have went to up the street was really crazy place to go. And so at the time, like, my parents really didn't want that as an option for me. So I ended up going to this school on the south side of Milwaukee, which was actually a private school that had like a really, really progressive art program. And to this day, I still always look back at it as like a very influential moment where I had these teachers where they really were like encouraging the students there to just do whatever, that art could be anything. I have a kid now and I'm watching him start to draw and paint. 
it's so how quick like society tells you what something's supposed to be like a house looks like this or this or that or that's wrong and this is right and like coming up in that you look at drawing or painting and you're like that's a good painting that's a bad painting that's a good drawing or that's a bad drawing and that's kind of what I was looking at stuff as like you see a, a really nice drawn comic book page and you're like wow this guy's amazing he can draw but also to get into this high school where all of a sudden you have a teacher telling you like the first day of class this woman her name was Patricia Fredericks and she stapled underwear in a sketchbook and said, this can be art. And like, it sounds really stupid, but all of a sudden it opened up another thing where I realized like art could be anything. It doesn't just have to fit into some box. Did you guys go through like the steps of you still lifes and all that stuff? We definitely or, did that, that stuff yeah. too, but the way they judged it, it wasn't like, oh, this is an A plus and this is an A or cool. whatever. It sounds like, like she was really great. There were other creative projects where, oh, go through these art books and pick out five paintings you like and make a mashup. You know, and at the time it was like weird too because, you know, I definitely veering more towards like an illustrative look to things. I like line work. Back to comic books and graffiti, I really was into that, but I didn't really see how that fit into like art necessarily at the time. But then I was sort of allowed to sort of integrate this comic book art into my high school art. Everything was fair game, I guess is what I'm saying. And that was really liberating as like a high school student interested in art. Did you go to like art college from there? I did end up going to art college, but that was a couple of years later because... Right, you're 18, you went to jail, right? Well, I, I was 18 and I actually got a scholarship to go to straight out of high school to the UW-Milwaukee, who actually has a pretty decent arts program as well. And I got a scholarship I won an award out of the high school I went to, and I think it was called the Frederick Layton Award or whatever. And so I went straight out of high school into college arts program. I think about this a lot now is that like going right out of high school into college, I don't know that that's sometimes the best thing. I just wanted to rage. I wanted to skateboard. I wanted to just be out and about doing whatever I wanted. And so you know, I didn't take it seriously when I went right into this arts program and then I got into the trouble and then I ended up having to drop out of that program but ironically the judge when I got the probation part of it was to enroll in city college so I ended up taking like a lot of bullshit like commercial art classes like photography and right. typography and all these things which again was like kind of a joke but I had to do it at the time after that I just took a couple years off and I was skating sponsored for companies. I was getting to travel around a bit to do that. So I was like just working like really crappy jobs at like Pizza Hut. Is this when you end up in SF? Well, this is before I, when I ended up in SF is actually when I decided I wanted to go to a real art school. And after a couple of years of traveling around skateboarding, doing this stuff, but taking it really seriously, going to contests in the 90s, San Francisco really was like the mecca of skateboarding. Mike was, Giant was on, and he was yeah. saying that it was because there was all these pits of construction because of the earthquake. Right. Like all these sites where buildings were gone, and so you could just skate them and, and gra graffiti them up. For that sure. Was that was definitely fun times. Yeah, I was there for that. But also like the Embarcadero EMB is like the most classic skate plaza ever. There was like a huge crew of some of the best dudes in the world at the time, Mike Carroll and all these, this whole scene there. And then you had the graffiti scene too. So it was like, that's what I wanted to be around because those were both my primary interests. And then 
on top of that, like I wanted to have my parents support my decision to move out there. So like part of that was to do something responsible, which was like to enroll in art school. SFAI, where are you at? I went to actually the Academy of Art in San Francisco, which it's now accredited. It wasn't accredited when I actually went there. Part of the good part of that though, and I, I mean, there's a lot of th bad things I could say about it, but I guess I'm not going to go down that route. But like, it was a lot more economical at the time. So that was appealing. Let's talk about like, your specific style. Your work has like a lot of movement. It doesn't depict movement. It has movement, you know, like it is movement. And then there are these things that like graphic influence that float in them, but really it's like an action painting almost. For it's sure. Like, did you just start with the kind of graphic influences we're talking about and then develop out of that? Or is it like a, a point at which like more like traditional fine art influences kind of crashed in? How did you feel like your style developing basically? You have permission to talk about that. All right. <laughs> well, for one, just kind of having this high school program where I was doing like traditional painting, sort of being interested in comic books and that kind of art and all this stuff. But then all of a sudden just really going full on into graffiti, you know, in my early 20s, all the way, you know, for decades and that, this graphic nature to that. And so... Did you, you know, avoid getting arrested again? I never really got arrested. I had a couple close calls in San Francisco, but there too, like moving to San Francisco and suddenly not living in this like politically conservative environment. Like right. you're suddenly living in one of the most liberal cities in the country. There's like a whole different vibe. There's a hippie vibe. There's a public space vibe. There's a collective vibes. There's this community vibe that I didn't really ever experience that living in the Midwest. So like you're doing graffiti or you're skateboarding in San Francisco, you're immediately part of a community and you can actually have an effect or like you're, you're building something, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it. All of a sudden, first friend I met in San Francisco, he's a skater, I'm skating with him. And all of a sudden I real, oh, you, you write graffiti too. And he happens to be one of the dudes like crushing the city. So it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then the idea of like, don't even worry about it. If we get caught painting down here in the middle of nowhere, the worst that's going to happen is maybe they'll take your paint. So it was like a whole new type of perspective opened up for me. Yeah, you can't skate here. You can't skate there. But are cops going to run up on you and cuff you and take you to jail, which did happen to me several times living in Milwaukee, getting arrested actually for skateboarding. It's insane. And then becoming... I guess invested in the community there, like skateboarding, graffiti, all of a sudden I'm getting involved in different aspects of the art community and like just kind of feeling empowered. And then at that point with graffiti and stuff, it was like I wanted to paint and I wanted to paint big in the public space. I just wanted to serve a greater purpose than just writing my name all over the place. I saw this idea of like, what if I start to paint things about what's going on in the city right now like one of the main things going on continuously in san francisco over the course of the last whatever 30 years is like the gentrification issue and so like all of a sudden i'm just like in ground zero and i'm seeing like friends of mine affected by this whole thing this motivated me to want to make like more socially or politically conscious work and use the public space to just address something that maybe could serve a purpose. Is there like a piece that's photographed that we can look at that's like an example of, of something you felt was like a politically committed example of something? The first mural I did there in Clarion Alley, it's this parade of animals. 
being sort of sucked away by the cell phone mechanism. Is this it? No, that's in Indonesia. There are a lot of different political undertones uh, to this mural as well. This is called Generator, and it, it was me and a, an artist friend, Aaron Noble. If anybody wants to Google this, it's Aaron Noble, Andrew Schultz. It's basically you see these houses growing on this wall of this a white building in San Francisco. Right. What you can see also down here is the stacked up housing on top of each other. It's like really overcrowded. What you also can't see on here is there's a lot of these billboards on the tops of the buildings that are sort of, I guess, addressing different propositions and things that were on like election ballots at the time. And one of the things that they passed there was the Ellis Act, which was enabling people to evict people that were living in their places for very, very long times. And what I will also tell you about like art in my mind that's political or sort of serving this purpose that I'm talking about in the community, I would not necessarily say this means it's like a billboard, just an obvious billboard. I think when you're dealing with the public space and you're putting art in the public space to like address something in like a real like punch you in the face with my politics or my ideologies, and I'm not really about that. I'm more about having a lot of these things be more present in vibes of the mural, present on a more like, I guess, subversive nature where a viewer actually has to think about what they're looking at. For example, like to just write something crazy, this or that. A, a, yeah, a slogan. For me, immediately, you're just eliminating somebody who thinks differently than than your slogan from even considering what the mural is or what they're looking at. Well, it sounds like one thing that you're saying is that you move from Milwaukee, which is a given environment, and you moved to San Francisco, and it felt different. You felt supported. Right. Apart from any specific policy issue, you felt like you could be a different person. Right. And the way that the, you're describing the politics working in these murals, it's not about sloganeering. It's not about like a specific issues as much, or even notifying people of issues. This mural, the one with Andrew Noble, one thing that is remarkable about it is how respectful of the building it is in a certain way. It's, right. it's saying this building and this message are both part of this place. Right. And right. they go together, which is very San Francisco. A lot of graffiti and like stuff that I love, it is almost an attack on the building. Right, you know, like right. it posits the city as a grid of rules. Right. And right. then the graffiti breaks those rules. Well, Whereas this is saying you're in San Francisco now and this is how we roll. So be comfortable in right. that, you know, which seems like a, a message embedded in the way that you came there and had a specific experience. Right. And this mural too is a, it's like originally the building owner, I think agreed to have us paint it because yeah. he figured well, for one, the building was constantly getting graffitied by not just what you would call typical hip-hop graffiti or whatever. It was getting gang graffiti on it. So there's a lot of these buff marks and things at the bottom of the wall. And it was an infamous drug dealing corner, which we didn't know until we started this. But we basically chose to utilize the building like a found object. So we scraped and primed only where the imagery was and we left the dilapidation or the history, so to speak, visible on the building, which a lot of people really like that. We did this in 2001. It was like really the beginning of doing large projects. Did the other writers, taggers, like respect it? That's another thing too, is this like 
I don't really necessarily do murals in the same way that I did this. This was at the beginning, and this yeah. mural was on and off painting for a year. I've figured out quicker ways to get things done now so that I'm in and out of a neighborhood in five or six days. But this is always like a crucial part of the process of doing public art for me is like talking to the people who live around it and hearing their opinions, hearing what they have to say. It's always really amazing the way just even some small comment by someone who lives there or walks by can like, oh, that's definitely needs to be some way incorporated into the mural. And this is, happens time and time again. With this one particularly, I, I had to deal with a lot of kids that were out there selling drugs, young kids. And, you know, they were cool and they were graffiti writers too, which was funny. And then start talking to them about graffiti and then tell them, oh, I'm so-and-so, I do this. And then they're like, oh, you actually are a real graffiti writer or whatever. And so that changes their perspective immediately. But also they're out there drinking Mad Dog 2020 all day, listening to hip hop angry hip-hop for that matter and then by the end of the day all of a sudden they're looking for a fight they see me over there painting and then it's like night and day so i had a couple of different altercations there there were several times where the wall did get bombed but i fixed it really quick these How are always did, things did that, that go on i mean like it's still there this recently got painted over and it got painted over only because we didn't paint the building. We left the dilapidation going, and so it was there for almost 15 years. So did, were there other tags on it, or well, people what, like generally? When well, you do a big piece what, like that that's well known, do people go, "Okay, we're not going to tag that building"? Well, or you they, never you know, know because kids are going to be kids. Time, but, but some are what, more than others. Like some what, people like rec they're like, "Oh, that's that." Yeah. Well, and they know too. Some taggers are into vandalism, and they want to get as long of right. a run as they possibly can. Tagging on a mural is a lot harder to paint over than just tagging on a, a white wall. They just come and buff it out. So yeah. in some ways, you get more of a run if you tag a mural. I mean, that being said, like a couple years ago when it was still running, it did get a bunch of tags on it. And I actually just went there and added more elements over the tags. So the mural kind of changed a little bit. And down here in L.A., this has happened quite a bit where I've done murals and they just complete get hit every other week. And it's like there was one I did over on Santa Fe and 7th where it just kept on getting hit. But like it's on my route every morning going to the studio. So every morning I'd drive by it. And if it got hit, I had the paint in my trunk and I would just quick go over it with more elements. So it was almost like you're it, collaborating. It, sort of. Yeah. It was like a firefighter emergency art fixer. There's a certain point where anybody who's like tagging and also doing paintings at all, but especially murals, where you go, well, there's a thing I do when I have time and there's things I do when I don't have time. Right. And you have to decide when your style splits in those two. Right. You right. know, like whether you're going to go like do stencils so you can do intricate stuff, but quickly, or whether you're going to do one thing that's studio that's just going to be like labor intensive or whether everything's going to look like graffiti. Right. Like when did that happen and how did that happen? And what were the decisions you made about like the more labor intensive oil or I guess you use oil, right? I use your, acrylic. Okay. I use mostly acrylic. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because it brings me back to what I wanted to say originally when you were talking about the development of what I do. And so initially I was like not confident in my brush control or being able to make a specific type of line. So I was always so dependent on like the pen or the marker or something. And so the beginning stages was like this challenge to figuring out how to make 
good lines, the same fluidity as like drawing with a pen, or which took years and years. But eventually, as time went on, I started to find like all these brushes and figuring out these really efficient ways to make these marks and like ways to cut the corners, like what you're saying. So everything I do, I'm painting by hand and it's my hand mark making. I figured out how to manipulate brushes. I figured out dry brush techniques where I'm making 30 lines at a time versus one at a time because in the beginning I was sitting out there with a size one brush making every single line and that's why I'd be standing out there for months on end and now there's all these different brushes you buy and all these different rollers and just the experience of doing this now for almost 20 years I've like figured out ways to like really efficiently but in order to do that you either have to be doing studio work or doing legal work right? right so when did that start was there a point in school you had like a street style and you had like a studio style was that house mural the first time you did like a big public legal thing that was probably the biggest one that was major but the transition from doing graffiti to like doing murals was a very organic thing. It, it wasn't preconceived. Was there like a specific commission, like a specific moment where someone said, we want you to tag this building? Well, that or happened, whatever. but then like I couldn't figure out how to do it. And so my initial thought was just to ask different people, oh, can I paint your wall? And that didn't really go so well. So initially I did one mural in Clarion Alley Mural Project and then I wanted to do more. I was like, oh, I found out what I want to do. I want to do this every day. So I started doing murals illegally in the streets, setting up in broad daylight like I was legal with like an orange vest and drop cloths and like proper ladders. Started doing recon, I guess, on different locations where I'm all like, I haven't seen someone come in and out of this building in like the whole year. So what's it going to be a difference if I like paint here for three days obviously you got to be smart about it that's unusual like so you would look for buildings that look like they were low traffic and then you would go in there daytime as if it was a legal mural and you would take your time exactly and two i would look for like places that maybe people actually like this here because maybe places in disrepair places no one cared about first one of these i did was on around 8th and howard street in san francisco and I had met Aaron Noble because at the time he was the director of the Clarion Alley Mural Project and the mission. So when I did the project there, I met him and he was also itching to start doing murals. And we were just like having a problem to find locations. And so we just decided one day to just set up and do murals at this one place. I knocked out mine in a couple hours and Aaron was being a little too meticulous, went back the next day. He got busted and the the owner told him he had to paint over his And he did, but then we were like, okay, we were too much in the city. So then we found this place way down in the middle of nowhere, down in China Basin in San Francisco before that was developed, right at the end of 16th, where it hits the bay. And we found this block long wall. And so we went down there and did initial images And then we felt really safe down there. So we ended up painting this wall for like almost two months. And we did a whole entire block long mural without any permission to the extent that people were taking notice of it. I mean, he at the time was talking with the Hammer Museum here in L.A. about a show. And I believe a curator came to San Francisco to visit him. And he had taken him, James Elaine, who was curator of the hammer museum at the time he took him down there to see it and so that was like sort of what we were doing at first and then he ended up moving to la around the time that he had the show at the hammer which is still in the early 2000s and then i decided i wanted to try this thing again and so at the time i lived in the hayes valley district and i found another block long wall that was like 
basically a friend of mine who he lived across the street and there was just a cinder block gray wall that ran the whole block of the house literally streets length from people's front doors and talked to some of those people and it seemed like they weren't going to care so I started there and I got about a half a block done and then I got busted by the owner and had to paint out the whole entire thing and it became kind of a big ordeal and I kind of learned a lot of lessons. Sounds excruciating. People actually were generally happy about this going on and the owner of the building was just kind of like a hater. He didn't want to see anything good happen. So the lesson you learned was don't paint on that building. The lesson too is is like, you know, I tried to do the wall with no permission, some might say in an irresponsible manner. So then all these people start to see this nice mural happening. And I was like doing it so crazy. Like I even had like some of the neighborhood like grade school involved in part of it. This neighborhood was like really psyched to see this happening. And then all of a sudden I felt so bad. I went there at like five in the morning one morning and just painted out the whole thing and uh, I had this phone number like a voicemail set up for the project because I was trying to make it look like it was a a legit mural project. The voicemail actually got flooded with crazy calls and even the supervisor of that district in San Francisco, Chris Daly, who later I became friends with, um, he even called up because they just wanted to figure out what happened or like save whatever happened and for me. I didn't even want to deal with it, you know, because I just felt embarrassed. Like I tried to do a mural illegally, got busted, had to paint over it. All these people were upset about it. I, I didn't really want to use that approach anymore after that point, I guess is but what I mean, I'm saying. But you got your foot in the door as noticed by people who would give you legal work doing these illegal projects, which seems like a common paradigm for a lot of artists where it's like you do something that no one is letting you do. Right. And that no one sanctions. And then you eventually get to do stuff that lots of people sanction and they celebrate, but only because you got them to notice by doing this thing that, you know, was off the books in some way. Like, yeah, yeah. So people have started noticing your murals and doing and but, asking for... Yeah, yeah. And also then galleries too. So how long were you happening. doing these like DIY ones before... A couple months? of years. Okay. And to you be fair were, yeah, and to ahead. be honest, it's like I never really had like ulterior motives in this whole thing. Nowadays, like the whole street art, graffiti, whatever thing, like there's like, like there's a people. formula, like people yeah. hit the street with the pure motivation that they want to get noticed yeah. and in hopes of ending up in that white cube. So to me, like the motivation is on some level, it's a little bit insincere. I guess what I'm saying is like I was merely kind of doing what I wanted to do. Like it, it wasn't like I had sure. some like uh, strategy of how this was going to somehow turn into like a career for me. What I think were you very, doing at the time for work? I was in school. So I was kind of living on financial aid. Would you photograph stuff and like bring it into class and be like, hey, I'm working on this too? I would show people, but I was in an illustration program and a lot of the teachers, it was really rough. Like I didn't really get support. Hmm. A lot of the teachers told me what I was doing was junk or garbage or this or that because with a school like that they're like trying to teach you how to follow trends and you know look at what this guy's doing and do what he's doing and that's going to work for you but like that's what I really learned is that like doing this art thing there's no formula for success there's no formula to move forward it's like really is about finding your own path if I'm like talking to students everybody wants to know the magic formula to like be able to support yourself being an artist and there really isn't it's a hustle for one but i think it's finding your own path the stuff where it's political where you're referring to the housing situation for example it's clear where that comes from you know right. like you talked about that experience 
But then, like, a lot of this stuff, it starts to move into, like, styles. There's, like, a, like, yeah. a Van Gogh-y thing that goes on. There's a sort of woodcut vibe to some of it. Other stuff is almost American folk art. Yeah, yeah. Obsessive, like, old walls. Right. Not talking about how it gets made or when it got made or where it got made, but, like, the world of imagery you created is sort of, like, storm. Right. Of clashing. What is that for you? Well some of the comic book stuff, but sometimes you don't realize why you're attracted to something at the going through the process and years and years of being interested in something. And then you kind of start to realize why, but I came across this thing called the Nuremberg Chronicle of 1492, which is like this giant book of like maps. And it was like, quote unquote, first attempt at mapping Western Europe. Initially, of course, I'm like attracted to this because of aesthetics. I like the obsessive compulsive quality of it um i like the outsider it looks like very untrained but it's very detailed it's very that's an interesting that's an important combination that comes up in both medieval art it comes up also in like a lot of folk art and and also comes up in a lot of graffiti in that like the rules of how to depict things are not consistent exactly but the amount of effort the person puts in is so much that it takes on a tightness and a solidness and an almost illustrational quality that is independent of skill or or at least traditional ideas about skill. And I see that in, in your work as well. Yeah, I was interested in that. Firstly, because I liked how it looked. Oh, we're looking at this one that looks like a, a village in a sort of orthographic perspective. And then right. there are like these sort of volcano like towers made of brick. Smokestacks. And stuff coming out of it. Was this influenced by looking at maps and stuff? For sure. That was- for sure. Absolutely. At the time also, I was like really getting a, very interested in like Persian miniatures for the same reason. Mm. Like okay. this meticulous detail, but also there's some level of like classical training and perspective and all these things that are sort of like thrown out the window like things are flattened out in these weird ways and just this oddness of it i really liked and so both of these sort of things were like immediately appealing to me but then the time like i started to get into undertones of the themes of like war and globalization and environmental degradation and all these things that seem to be like looming and you know i can tell you like when war really started to like dominate my psyche was you know definitely post 9 11 and all the crazy shit that was going on and you know and then i start to look at these two things that i was attracted to in like the nuremberg chronicle for example it's like this attempt to map Western Europe. Well, why would someone attempt to map it? Oh, so they can find their way around? No, it was to strategize, to conquer new frontiers. So immediately I'm like, oh, not only do I love this aesthetically, but you know, essentially it was like a tool of war like to strategize. And immediately that kind of vibe was just like, this is the same thing that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you know, the idea of sort of referencing this like, really historical (laughs) work and put it in a post-contemporary context where you're talking about now a lot of the wars and a lot of these things that historical art forms are talking about or referencing they're the same wars that are going on today that really resonated to me as like something really valid to reference in my work a lot of artists in the last 15 20 years are interested in that landscape space of these dense networked landscape. It's like a globalization. There's a reaction to having to take this distance perspective. Right. Like you're not a portrait painter. Right. Like you're a muralist and your paintings are wider than they are tall, generally. Right. 
and you're thinking about landscape, but you also have a lot of images, they're unmoored from gravity and the kind of space that landscapes traditionally have where there's like right. a sky right, and a right. ground. For sure. You know, and you do like a more flat space and then landscape kind of floats around inside of it. Yeah, yeah. Is that just like what felt natural to you in the beginning? Or was there like a conscious be like, okay, in San SF you'll see ones like this. It's like a David Hockney thing where it's like, there's a ground, right. there's a sky, and it's like wacky and abstracted, but there's still like a pictorial space that makes sense. Whereas yours are like these layered things that have no top and bottom. Maybe unconsciously it was part of just sort of throwing this traditional rule of what a landscape should be out the windows. Then some of them are working in very typical landscape forms a few but i mean for the most part it's not even like escher like playing with gravity it's like you don't care about gravity for sure that's not a space that you're interested in maybe it's because it has something to do with the distance from which a person would see these things right like, they're not in those landscapes they're seeing them as almost wrapping paper on the building right you know like it's kind of floating between landscape and pattern definitely i would say pattern is also something like just in my own head i like to do this repetition thing of layering where each space gets one of these, and then each space gets one of these, and then each space gets one of these, and then this repeat of this layering way of working to make it more simple is like the placement of the imagery is, is not random. Like I'm very much yeah. specifically picking different areas. Are um, you thinking about transforming the building with the picture? Because I, some people put a picture on a building, some people let the building tell them what the picture should be to a very high degree, and some people are almost dematerializing the building. They do so much painting to the building, like from a distance, the, the building seems like it's a different shape or something. Like, yeah. how do you- That's definitely not my interest. My interest is sort of melding my mural into a building and working with the location, not necessarily like punching a viewer in the face. I like to the really- The bar one, I feel like is really like that. The turquoise on that one was already there, and I'm like, oh, it's like a sea line or, you know, an ocean horizon or whatever. I definitely like to find locations and react with, especially with this mural. Someone will be like, oh, do you want to paint a mural in the Philippines? Sure, I would love to. Well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I can't really tell you that until I'm there because a lot of things is like right. being in the location, reacting to the vibe of the city, maybe the sound of the city, all these different things. You sort of arrive on what something should be or shouldn't be. Maybe this is like vague, but a lot of times I don't tell the building what I'm going to paint. The building kind of tells me. I definitely like for murals or images to delicately meld into an environment versus just like dominate the space. As street art, they definitely feel like street art and fine art very much equally in a way that a lot of different street artists and fine artists like work in different ways. Banksy always feels like a street artist with right. minimalist thanks, uh, thanks. like sensibility. He doesn't feel like a fine artist in a certain sense. He feels like somebody who's like doing a certain line. Then there are certain art, like Basquiat always feels to me like a street artist who's been imported into the gallery. Whereas you always feel like Everyone who would see it is immediately goes, oh, this is your street artist and you're painting on this building. It right. doesn't feel like you've artificially transplanted your work outside. Right. But it also doesn't feel like a typical piece of street art. I think because of the amount of time you're allowed to put into it. Yeah, and thank you. I, that means a lot to me what you just said because it's really something I've 
tried to achieve but to put it into another perspective too it doesn't always make it the easiest for me as an artist actually it's like people really love to like you're this exciting staring street artist and it fits into this box to a t or you're this fine artist and it fits into this box to a t or whatever and i've really strived very hard to like walk in between these two zones i've always more related with the idea of being a muralist than being a street artist and that's really interesting because in the the socialists like muralistas of like mexico they were muralists right like when you refer to their style simply whether it's in a painting or on a building it's muralism right like there's something about that very format which informs the content and meaning of the way they painted and including like when you look at some of those paintings they use formats and shapes that you would never be using any other kind of painting because you would have to walk up to them to get those kind of shapes to be a muralist now would be impossible because you can't get those public art commissions out of nowhere. Right. So you had to start as a street artist. Right. Like you had to be a street artist to be a muralist. Right. And if you went into galleries and made giant mural, like if you were Julie Meritu, she probably will get like a mural commission now and again, right. but it would not occur to the public art system to take these artists who make giant paintings and go, oh, you're going to make murals for us regularly. But also I think that enters into like a financial thing too, whereas like I have the love for it. Like most of these projects I'm doing, I'm not like walking away with huge amounts of money, many times nothing. And so like Julie Maritou sells paintings for a million bucks. Why would she go out on the street and do a mural if she wasn't going to get paid tons of money, you right. know what I mean? I don't know. Doing, Maybe she would. She you're does. doing well enough that yeah. you can afford to do that. I mean, For sure. the thing is For like, sure. okay, so you're in school and you're living off financial aid. You can do these big ass murals that no one pays for, no one buys. And that is what created the engine of the stuff you did right. eventually get paid for, right? Were you selling paintings in galleries? And then that's like, okay, now I can afford to like take right. two months or whatever, do this. Is yeah, and I mean, it? I guess right in the beginning of like when I started doing murals, I was showing my art in like cafes in San Francisco and, you know, sure. weird, yeah. you know, alternative spaces. And I was also like finding friends with warehouses and just doing some super do-it-yourself art show with bands playing. I was selling stuff for 40 or 50 bucks or whatever, and on my little hustle with trying to sell paintings and putting stuff in cafes. And at the time, too, I would say in the early 2000s, late 90s, there wasn't a lot of galleries that were open to showing, like, the type of work I make, you know? And so um, on that level, you know, it was like, it was an uphill battle and you know as things went i always wanted to be painting murals just because i loved to be on the street it felt like this sort of like grandiose studio and make this giant larger than life stuff that you could never make in your studio you know Does that, that really excited that it's me. not permanent no i i got over the permanence of things just doing the graffiti stuff for years you i mean i can see like up a roof i go Zach, and it's not permanent. I'm fine about that. But like, if I like the amount of work well, that I, I that would drive me nuts I mean, if I put in the, this amount of work yeah. that you put into these, and then they're just gonna be gone. Well, that. some of the stuff too, though. Like when we were doing graffiti, it was not just like we were going right. up on rooftops doing ten color, super elaborate stuff, sure. six hours all night long, and then wake up the next day without any sleep, just excited to go like see it. So you you're know? just and, accept it, you're and just um, like it's going to be a photograph forever, right? And, that's it. and like you know, sometimes you get a year run off of something. I mean, there were things I did illegally that ran for years and years and years in San Francisco, and 
that was always really cool. So I guess, you know, just accepting the ephemeral nature of putting something out in the streets is like part of it. And that's why I always laugh because like a lot of street artists nowadays are like people doing a lot of work in the streets and then their murals get bombed or whatever. And they're so mad about it. And it's like this atrocity. And then the general public, it's just like this huge like thing but I also feel like the artist needs to just embrace the fact that when you put something out on the street, it's out there for everybody. And like at that point, you know, it's either going to last or it's not, or the artist is going to come back and fix it. And not everything runs, I guess. Sure. Okay. So now you're, you're showing in a bunch of galleries. You're doing all right and have been for a while. When did galleries decide that the kind of work you were doing was like, was sale not not the alternative spaces, not the people who are like the DIY, but when it was like, okay, now you can make a painting and we'll sell it, and that's your job. And I'm also interested in any kind of disjunctions you had where where people expected X from you, and you're like, I'm not that kind of projects that you were proposed that didn't the change over from like this is unsaleable street art yeah. and free when, murals. When Fancy glasses and a nice suit come up to you. <laughs> you know, it was like funny because, it, you know, I install some show in the cafe on Hate and Fillmore and I'm suddenly I have 20 things in there that are between like a couple hundred bucks and like maybe 800 bucks and everything's sold. And, you know, San Francisco is a smaller community, too, where things kind of travel around. Oh, you should get over here. But one kind of awesome thing that happened for me is like I had this cafe show and there's a really crucial, very like really did a lot for the art scene in San Francisco. And it's the luggage store gallery. It's uh, Daryl and Lori. And they happened to live in a, a live workspace a little down from Haight and Fillmore at the time. And they came in and saw it and were like, oh, this is amazing. And then they reached out to me, not because they had an opportunity for me, but because they just wanted to meet me and talk. And like, you know, these people are 30 years deep in the arts community there. They were very crucial early on in artists like Barry McGee, Margaret Kilgallen, Chris Johansson, so many different artists. It, you know, it really was like and still is the epicenter of the arts community in San Francisco. And so they saw what I was doing and then all of a sudden I met them and I, oh, I did this in Clarion. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these, these connections happen, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, so-and-so. But then shortly after that, maybe they told a few of their friends that actually had commercial galleries and then some people had reached out to me. But in San Francisco too, there were at least artists like Barry McGee and Alicia McCarthy, Chris Johansson, some of these people that were you know, already kind of doing this thing there. And I wouldn't necessarily say I came there and saw it. And that's why that had like the most dramatic effect on what I do. But like, you know, I definitely am a huge twist and Barry McGee fan. And like, you know, that just seeing what he was doing, I could see a future in what I was doing. I think that's a really key part about when you're young and you're an artist is just being able to see a future in what you're doing. I remember you know, the headlands. Yeah. yeah. They always ask every year. Cause I, I did the headlands. Who should we show? Right. And like who should come to the headlands? And it seems like they're just looking so hard at New York, you right. know, like they're looking so hard at art news and, uh, you know, like art forum artists. Right. And I'm like, you guys have your own homegrown scene here. Right. There's a San Francisco style and there for has sure. been for 15 years. Yeah. And it just seems like they're not interested in that. It seems like it would cause a lot of 
little anecdotal moments where you're like, somebody wants this and you give them that. Or they, right. like, it seems like the expectation mismatch is being managed by artists now, but right. it seems like it took a while. For sure. I did I actually did a project at the Headlands, but it was because a friend of mine had like a studio there. <laughs> yeah. It was one of the That's how I got ones. in the door through, through but, a friend. But they have had some of the San Francisco folks in there. Like my friend Paul Wackers was in there and I think Claire Rojas and some people. But I, I don't know how that kind of thing works. I mean, really, there's so much social politics that go into all this art stuff. No matter what city you end up in, it's all there. And I mean, I don't really know exactly what goes into their decision makings. I do know a lot of these nonprofit arts organizations and they really like to hit everybody up for donating their work for their auctions right. to raise money for their programming. But then when you come around to apply for the programming, <laughs> then, you know. Yeah, that is <laughs> always like, are you coming to the show? I'm like, the show that you didn't put me in? Yeah. I, I got people I got to hang out with. I got to go see, Get Out is playing. I'm like, it is weird how they're like super ready to take your work. Right. right. <laughs> Can you tell us about that airplane also? How did you get to paint that airplane? Oh yeah. Well, the Good airplane point. was a project organized by a guy named Eric Firestone who lived out in Tucson for many years. He's an art dealer now. And so basically he was just out there and had access to a bunch of these like I guess scrapyards and boneyards and he was like salvaging a lot of stuff out of them to sell them in his antique store because people were interested in like the chairs and the different aspects of them but then I guess he kind of realized how cheap you could buy these old airplanes and then he started to bring people out there to paint these airplanes out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and initially there was no real plan with it he was starting to just bring these artists out there to paint planes I think the artist Retina and How and Nazem, these German uh, collective, were some of the first ones out there. But then the Pima Air and Space Museum is in Tucson as well. And somehow, I guess they might have seen that he was doing this, and then they took sort of notice to it. That really is the perfect place. Because the thing when you're painting an airplane, the number one thing is, is the space. Like, where are you going to put this thing? Where are you going to do it? So basically, I met Eric 2011 and he had a bunch of scrap planes coming in and he invited me to come out there and paint it you know you come out there and stay at his place and paint a plane in the desert and it's pretty amazing experience but like it's not like there was huge amount of funding behind it it was just like i get to paint a plane and it gets to be on display at the pima air and space museum that was like enough motivation sure. for me to want to do it it really was super fun to paint something like that. And I've always been seduced by walls. And I guess you were saying that a little earlier about the moment where the fancy guy with the glasses comes up. Early on, it was like people would come up to you with projects. And a lot of times, if it was a big, beautiful wall, I was like, oh, I'm in there no matter what. And so like many times I would just take on projects that had little or no pay just because I really loved the wall. And in this case, it was, I get to paint an airplane. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. He's done quite a few and all of them are still on display at the Pima Air and Space Museum. That sounds really fun. I, I would love to do a plane. Like I, I would take that deal. Like usually I'm like, fuck you, pay me. Like yeah. that's like tattooed on my arm somewhere. But like, they'd be like, yeah, you paid a plane. I'd be like, sure, absolutely. 
it's it's difficult for sure. <laughs> no, I mean the thing is about projects like that is like there's actually a dude down the street who like wants me to do like a mural on the store, and I love it's my corner store, so I like right. I want to do it, but I'm like yeah, but like I have all this other stuff I literally like I have to do, and people right. want you know like they're paying me for it, and there's medical bills and blah blah blah, and it's like that's that you know right. In my case, the game's definitely changed a bit since having my son. Right, um, bet, And then know. all of a sudden you really realize, like, you know, and with my wife and we have to watch after our son and she's an artist and has a job and all these things, it's like I can't just afford to, like, fly out to somewhere to do some huge project for no money anymore just because it's a cool project. There has to be some sort of funding or at least some kind of economic gain in order for that to be uh, worth my, you know. How old is your son is this one? Uh, he's four. Oh, nice. How old is this one with Diddy? A few years back, he bought two at Art Fair. In oh, Diddy Miami. bought them himself? Yeah. Well, he has an art advisor who's a big fan of mine. Oh, um, awesome. I want to revisit. I was looking at it earlier. I, I remember the first time I ever saw it, and I almost couldn't look at it because it was so intense. It's just like so much energy. I, I love the song Painkiller by Judas Priest, but I can't always listen to it. Right. Because it's just too much for me. For sure. <laughs> you know, like I have to be in the right mood and the right mindset. And your your, your art for me is a lot like Painkiller. It's like, like a high it's cognitive load. High compliment. <laughs> I can't always look at it. Is this intentional? Like are you trying to drive me crazy? No, a lot of it definitely in in the last couple of years, it's been like sort of trying to uh, find this balance between that and maybe a little less. Um, a lot of it's like just drawn to like this obsessive compulsive nature of what if I do this to it? What if I do that to it? And sometimes uh, the best thing for me that happens is a deadline because I can't continue to work on something anymore. To what degree do you plan them? Like, do they have sketches where you're like, you know what's going to look? Because it seems like you have like a couple ideas for imagery and then it starts to grow after that. Right, right. I mean, I plan compositionally things more with like little thumbnail sketches of things that I realize, oh, this is this. But to the average person looking at these, it's more like note taking, I guess, with little thumbnail sketches that reminds me of an idea or a composition a super realized preliminary sketch to any of the stuff I do, you, you're not going to find that. You know, which is also kind of problematic when it comes to doing the public work because a lot of times I can show examples of, you know, it's going to look something like this or something like that, but I'm not going to sit here and do a super refined rendering of, a, of what this mural is going to be because, for one, it's going to take me forever. For two... If there's not a lot of money being paid, that's like, a, I don't want to compound all the, the work. Do you have to do the public art commission thing? Like you like submit things to people and be like, never oh, really this. done that stuff too much because I have, but like for me, the painting, the mural stuff, it's like when you get that urge to do it, it's what's really beautiful is like some of these mural festivals that they have now or street art festivals, they f bring in 20 artists from all over the place to do these walls in a city in a week. What's really cool about that is you just show up, here's your wall, and then you get to work and you do it and then it's done. When you start working with some of this like city stuff, it's nothing but red tape. You're like have constantly having to revise this. You need this insurance. You need all this different stuff. They want to see exactly what there's all this checks and balances. And so like maybe your initial idea that you apply to paint with, 
you're not even starting to paint that idea for like a year or like eight months or something because there's been so many checks and balances and hoops to jump through. And by the time you actually get to painting it, you're just like, I'm over this. I want to do something different. For me, that process of all that red tape and stuff of working with like city money or municipal money or, you know, it's just never really worked for me. Mm. How about the American flag? You seem to have that as a theme. Yeah, yeah. I started working with that as a symbol, you know, pretty much around the time that Barack Obama was elected. With all the symbols, I've sort of developed there's this, a like, lot of them. repertoire How many of, these did of you do? Was this... Yeah, there's a lot. Did you do, like, a year worth of work of these gold? Oh, it's an ongoing project. I'm still doing them now. So um, about how many do you feel like you've done? Probably a hundred, at least. As a symbol, like, a lot of the, like iconic imagery and stuff that I use things repeat but what I really like about all imagery is specifically like icons and things they're kind of defined by what else they're in a picture with this thing next to this thing can mean this thing while if the absence of that thing that that image means something completely different or and I really am attracted to this idea of like duality in an image or the American flag just started to become the ultimate symbol of duality specifically when Barack Obama was elected it was like one minute we have George W. Bush and you know everybody's pissing on the flag and I was even told on projects that I went on in Southeast Asia that I should put a Canadian pin on my bag, maybe so people thought I was from Canada instead of being from the US, and, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like Barack Obama was elected and it's all like the symbols being suddenly held up in high regard. Oh, there's this new, you know, age of hope and all these things. And so like, for me, all, all politics aside, I was like, wow, that's really amazing. Like how this thing goes from being frowned upon to being celebrated within a matter of a month in a, the matter of a new political leader being elected. Initially, I wanted to do something with the symbol, and so the beginning was like sort of making a painting that referenced the flag. But then, you know, I had this idea that I wanted to stretch the flags like canvases and make paintings on them. And then I ordered a bunch through a website, which is called the United States Flag Store, and it's based in Pennsylvania. It's a super old school. And so I ordered a bunch of American flags and then I get them and they come with these little cards, barcodes, the whole nine. But then in fact, they were made in China. I just was like, wow, this is insane. This seems like a really perfect thing to sort of address in art. So the initial flag project started with flags stretched that were just gold leaf, the face of them with the insignia made in China in the right corner, just like you know, a statement of outsourcing. You oftentimes hear about how outsourcing is hurting the American worker and the whole entire economic crisis. So like this seemed like the perfect way to sort of address that. When you move from something that clearly it's about how it looks, at least the first initial read, to right. something like that where it's, a lot of the flag paintings are very conceptual. Like right. in the sense of like, we see something we've seen before, which is a flag. Right. And then the interloping of the gold or the other things is, is largely symbolic. So do you feel like you become a different artist? You're working from a different point of view? Like you're asking the viewer to do a different thing? Or do you feel like they're organically very close? Well, that's been the really interesting part about that project. And there's other work that I do too. I would say, yeah, you're right. Aesthetically, they're very, very different than the other work, but I would say conceptually, they're actually about a lot of the same stuff. Globalization, imperialism, I like that, but 
when I started to show these and they were shown isolated from my other work because I've shown them isolated from the other work. I've also shown them in context with the other work, but like a whole different sort of audience was all of a sudden born for my work, Hmm. like a different audience that really wasn't interested in the more like illustrative narrative stuff. There was this whole new wave of people interested in what I was doing. People that maybe weren't so into my other work by them being introduced to my work through these flag works, suddenly they came around to be understand the other work as well. So it was like a translator. Yeah. So when you do a project like this, how do you deal with Jasper Johns? Because he did it, right? He right. did the flag paintings. He did a painting of a flag. And then some of yours reference him immediately. Directly, yeah. Like he owns it as an image in, in the sense that like you can't not bring it up, right? Right. So do you go to yourself like this is so compelling for me right now and it's 2008 right that I can't not do it or do you go I actually want to be in a conversation with Jasper Johns I mean that was definitely a consideration definitely he owns it but like the flag has been a huge pop art sure. image for since then but like, I feel like but- just the flag is sort of the ground Right. You know what I mean? Just that. I mean, the flag appears in many different kinds of arts and contexts, right. but like the flag as the ground, that is the horizontal staging area for the right. painting. For sure. But also the thing that's different is these are actual flags that are stretched where they're not just they're painted. Also, like in this one, they're part of an installation with these walls. And yeah, that kind of yeah. That was part of an installation at a gallery here in LA, actually. I'd be more than happy to be in conversation with uh, Jasper Johns. I mean, they definitely have a different affect. It's just, as a painter, that's going to happen. Right. So these are different states that have been shot with arrows? It's actually a crumbled wall. Oh, okay. I was wondering yeah. if the wall had been crumbled into yeah. the shape of specific states. Yeah, so what's in front of this pointing directly at this is a cannon, like a giant so monument sculpture. So there's a cannon sculpture. facing a bunch of paintings on flags in gold, yeah. and then there's all these arrows. And some of these are like wall. cannonball is sitting there in gold. The idea, too, was like with this specific show, there was a monumental structure with a cannon, very like typical cannon monument. There were benches around the the space. It was basically set up like a public plaza. There's a lot of different connections with that. Like I started integrating these aspects of like public plazas into my installations because they were really referencing the plazas in cities that I enjoy skateboarding in. But then when you start to look at sort of the root of like the public plaza, historically what this was for, it was like a public space and people were meant to congregate there. And, you know, that's where people gathered to maybe hear political speeches or talk about, have a debate or this or that in history. This place where there was like a dialogue going on between people about what was going on in the world or in their community. stuff is about places you start you're skating right you're in milwaukee you're doing stuff go to san francisco you have a specific feeling about the place like the geography right then you start making work that is landscape it's about that place and then the political it is a geographical view of the u.s like planning mapping and then you, you said you're curating a show that's like about LA. Like, right. And also in a physical way, like, because skateboarding is always about reading the space. Like you're like, what can I get on? What can I get off? What can I jump off? What can yeah, I jump yeah. off? What can I grind? What can I grind? 
So you're reading physical spaces, and graffiti is too. Like, you know, they go together. Like, what can I climb? What can I not climb? For sure. And then when you do an installation or a mural, it's not just about the space, which you do do. You engage and change the space. Right, right. So all of these things, they're very rarely sculptures. Right. But they're always about the physical spaces that you're in and how those echo out into bigger sociological ideas. Some of the installation stuff I do, there is sculptural aspects and... This idea of creating these sort of theatrical spaces and galleries where, you know, the viewer is viewing two-dimensional work maybe hanging on a wall, but they're also interacting in a space where there's things going on. Like the viewer is almost becomes part of, to another viewer, a viewer in the installation is like becomes a part of that installation. And But I also like this idea of referencing the public space inside the gallery Oftentimes you're painting a wall and that's a very straightforward thing, but to like really try to reference the public space inside of a gallery because a gallery is a really isolated place. And do, so do you like, feel like frustrated like, by that when your art gets sequestered? Is your work trying to push out? I don't get frustrated by, by that at all. I think it's just navigating different environments. With a gallery, you know that there's an audience coming in a gallery that's specifically most likely interested in art. So they're walking through the door. They're choosing to come and see artwork, where in the public, it could be someone interested in art. It could be somebody who doesn't care about art. It could be somebody who doesn't even want to see it. So, like, the audience of the public space is, like, the most diverse audience that you can really address with art. But there's a certain responsibility in that. I don't want to paint murals in the public space that some neighborhood has to deal with that are all about my politics and ideologies, punching them in the face every day. I'd rather have those politics and things be on a more subversive level where they're all there, but maybe you have to think about it to arrive at that point. Within the gallery, people chose to look at art, so you can say whatever you want because you chose to come and see this. I think it's fair game to punch them in the face with whatever. In a gallery show, maybe is up for a month or two months or something, you can be a lot more timely and address something very literally happening in the now, but when you're approaching in the public space, if something's gonna be there for five or 10 years, you wanna approach that in a more of a timeless manner where next year people aren't even gonna know what it was about. With the things I'm doing in galleries, I like to navigate that audience as much as I like to navigate the one of the public space. It's just different. What that must about? have been a real dream when you did that skate park. That was, that was. That was an amazing experience. I just wish I had more time for it because me and two guys literally painted the whole entire place in five days, and it would have been nice to have a lot more time to to really do it. Where was it? It was in Miami for Basel. I I remember seeing one part as like a wave and thinking like, how come no one's ever done this before? This is... Like, duh, of course this is what we should do. We should do a skate park. Right. I oftentimes use just the idea of a bench. I really like that as a reference point because like it really kind of separates like someone who doesn't skateboard from someone who does skateboard. A nice looking bench. bench. (laughs) Like I look at a nice looking bench and I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to skate this thing. Whereas a lot of people don't look at it that way. Oh, it's a bench. I sit there. I'm like passionate when I see a nice marble bench. It's like, oh man, it brings something up in me. And so like, and looking at these mundane objects and being able to see like way more uses for a mundane object than what they were meant to be. And that's like a really key part of 
art and being an artist. Yeah, that's like a common thing that like skater artists also say is like a very early age, you start thinking about objects. No part of the city is designed for you to skate on it. Right. Like nobody said do this. So you have to like look at every object. But sometimes you would think otherwise. (laughs) Right, (laughs) yeah. This has been great. Thank you very much for coming out. Yeah, yeah. thank you. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Andrew Schultz. And their latest work at... AndrewSchultz.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-S-C-H-O-U-L-T-Z.com. Where you'll find his public and private works, his archive, and upcoming announcements. To just connect with us or see images from the artists that we are talking about or the ones that they talk about during their interview, you can hit us up on our Instagram, which is... We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. And Zach has... An art show coming up because I'm an artist. So you should come to the opening. It's going to be in New York City at Fredericks and Fryser Gallery. It's called A Thousand and One Nights. It's opening April 19th. The opening is from 6 to 8, and like a regular art show, it'll be up for a month. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, all things Papeng. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. Then you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash weedart. All one word. Weedart is produced by Papeng and mnemonic recordings. We can't say it either. Our sound producer, engineer, editor is Justin, 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 Asher. Okay, I've been reading T.S. Eliot. The fuck, man? I I wear sandals with shorts. I don't care. Mnemonic recording.